Our Bible reading this morning is, as already indicated, from Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in, behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Amen. May God add his blessing to this reading of his holy word. Let's pray. Lord God, the psalmist declared to you, the law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. 
by your spirit at work within us. Create that attitude of heart. Create it within us, Lord. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Some years ago, Helen and I had a holiday in Rome. I know others have done likewise and have enjoyed it greatly. It was indeed a memorable visit. Daily, there were wonderful things to see. The catacombs, the Colosseum, the Trevi Fountain, the Spanish Steps, Trajan's Column, St. Peter's Square and Basilica. And further within the Vatican, the Sistine Chapel, with Michelangelo's depiction of God the Creator painted on the ceiling. It's perhaps one of the most recognized images in the world of art. Even as I speak, there will be those there probably able to see it in their mind's eye. The painting of a muscular old man with long white hair and flowing beard, arm outstretched, his finger about to touch Adam's with the spark of life. It's widely acknowledged as a masterpiece. And yet, from a biblical perspective, it would be regarded as totally inadequate and potentially unhelpful in creating wrong ideas about God, what he is really like. What is God, says the Shorter Catechism, and answers, God is spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. To try and produce an image of God is to reduce the infinite to the finite. And however impressive an attempt it may be, even however reverent the attempt may be, inevitably, inevitably, it will be less than it should be. To whom will you compare me or liken me, as the authorized version has it, says God the Holy One in Isaiah 40, 25. His challenge is unanswerable. We could send out space probes to the furthest reaches of the universe. It would be wasted effort. For no adequate comparison would be found that would suffice to fully encapsulate the being of God, no matter how cosmic it was. He is incomparable, unfathomable, ineffable, beyond description. He lives, says the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 6 and 16, in unapproachable light. No one has seen him. No one can see him. He is a mystery beyond us. Yes, in Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God became flesh and was born as a baby at Bethlehem, the creator of the universe lying in a feeding trough. God 
made flesh. God before us. God, yes, that we can see. But how that happened, I would contend, makes it all the more mysterious. It only accentuates the mystery. And so inevitably, however great an artist, no one can do justice to God. A masterpiece may well be produced, but ultimately there is a mystery to God that cannot be encapsulated. Can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? Ask Job 1. Sorry, Job 11 and verse 7. And the expected answer is no, no, no. Nothing in the created order will provide an adequate comparison precisely because it's created. I say again, there is a mystery to God, a mystery that we cannot solve. If we could, he would not be God. But if God is a mystery, how do we form any valid idea of him? He's provided the means to do that. He speaks to us by his spirit. He reveals himself to us in his word. And that should give us pause for thought every time we open this book. The particular part of his word that we're focusing on this morning is, of course, Psalm 139, which I invite you to turn to now. A psalm in which David meditates on the mystery of God. The mystery of God's all-embracing knowledge. The mystery of God's inescapable presence. The mystery of God's sovereign providence. And then lays before us the spiritual challenge this mystery presents. There are at this very moment spy satellites orbiting the earth that can zoom in and provide high-resolution images of any activity that the particular government concerned considers worthy of scrutiny. David feels himself under inspection by a similar all-seeing eye as he contemplates the mystery of God's all-embracing knowledge. But in David's case, it's not only every movement that is known, but every thought as well. Even half-formed words are anticipated. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord, says David. You have searched me, and you know me. There is no room in my palace, says David, from which I can exclude you. No compartment of my mind in which I can bolt the door and bar you entry to. Everything I do, everything I say, everything I think is wide open to your gaze. How do we respond to such a God? How do we relate to him? Do we consider such knowledge a comfort? as we look ahead into 2024? Or do we consider such all-embracing knowledge 
an ominous threat. Some would indeed regard it as uninvited interference, like the character in George Orwell's 1984. They would be oppressed by the constant reminder, Big Brother is watching you. And certainly, the words you hem me in in verse 5 can be interpreted as you beseech me. But they can also be interpreted as you encircle me for protection. And this seems to be David's reaction, not one of resentment, but of grateful wonder. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, he says, too lofty for me to attain. David says to God, I freely confess I cannot understand you. You are a mystery to me. The more I find out about you, the more awesome, the more amazing, the more mighty and mysterious you become. This is the exalted view that David has of God. Do we have a similar view? As we contemplate the God we find revealed through Psalm 139, what is our reaction? Do we exalt him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Does this blessed and glorious Trinity, three persons in one God, excel all else in our thinking and therefore in our living? Does the praise of our God on Sunday touch our lives on Monday? The mystery of God's all-embracing knowledge and the mystery of God's inescapable presence. David momentarily considers flight from these all-seeing eyes, but immediately perceives the impossibility of such a notion. This mysterious God not only knows everything, he is everywhere. As I said to park kids, blast off into the stratosphere, go up to the International Space Station. You won't outdistance him. He'll be there waiting for you when you arrive. Descend to the depths of the underworld, and the result is the same. No matter how far we go, no matter what direction we choose, no matter how fast we travel, we find, like Jonah, that this God is inescapable. Seeking to run away from him is futile. Again, how do you and I respond to this ever-present God? Are we threatened by or grateful for his presence? It is possible to echo the words of verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? With a sense of frustration, evidencing a desire to get away from this God, to be rid of him, resenting his presence, troubled by it. Troubled by what this presence calls for. 
our abdication from the throne in order that the rightful king, King Jesus, may reign supreme. In many lives these days, sadly, there is only one king in them, and his name isn't Jesus. But that isn't David's perspective. David's reaction to God's inescapable presence is the same as his reaction to his all-embracing knowledge, one of gratitude. David is one of those who says, no matter what happens to me, I can rely on you being there, not to threaten me, but to direct me, not to make me feel anxious, but to make me feel secure. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. As we sang last week, I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast, for my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. And David goes on to say, even in circumstances where this does not seem possible, and he finds himself saying, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me. Even in such dark, depressing, distressing times, even in dark nights of the soul, says David, if I were to think, Lord God, you cannot see me anymore. I am deserted by you. You've forgotten me. I would be wrong. For no matter how dark the situation appears to me, even in the darkness, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. God sees in the darkest night as he sees in the day. Therefore, his reassuring hand is just as reliable in bad times as good times. We go into a future which undoubtedly will hold challenges for Park Church. Challenges surrounding ministry, the possibility of someone coming to work alongside Bruce. Challenges concerning our building. Challenges concerning our changing culture in which normative Christian belief is increasingly regarded as prejudice. Challenges that may cause us to doubt God's promises. In the face of such challenges, I bring to you the words of King George VI, his Christmas Day speech, in 1939, with the world at war, I say to you, 
Put your hand in the hand of God. That will be better than a light and safer than a known way. Put your hand in the hand of God. He's always there. It's impossible that he should not be. He is the inescapable God. And that, for David, brings reassurance. And hopefully, too, for us. The knowledge that no matter where we find ourselves in these difficult days, God's presence will be with us no matter what. David puts it this way, in what is probably, as already said, the most well-known of Psalms. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The mystery of God's inescapable presence, the mystery of God's sovereign providence. The mystery of God's sovereign providence. Here David enters the prenatal world of the womb and says in effect, a time when I didn't even exist as far as the world was concerned, at a time when even my mother wasn't aware of my existence, at a time when the embryo that was me had not matured enough to be recognizable as a human form, I was the recipient of your care and attention. You saw me there. I wasn't hidden from you. You had my life planned for me from start to finish. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Again, some respond to this negatively. Where's the freedom in this, they say? I'm no more than a pawn on the chessboard of life. But once again, that's not David's reaction. His reaction is found in verse 14 where he says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Once again, he responds with gratitude and worship. You took a personal interest in me, says David to God. My height, my eye color, my IQ, my strengths, my weaknesses. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is some of them. God's thoughts towards David are more in number than grains of sand on the seashore. Some may find that sovereign providence a threat to their freedom. David says, I find it a precious comfort in all of my human vulnerability. The mystery of God's sovereign providence. Again, how do we respond to this? How do we respond to this in the 95 world? How do we respond to this in the nitty-gritty of everyday life with all its perplexities and pitfalls? 
For that is the context of verse 19 to 24, which brings the psalm to a close. Devotional meditations give way to the harsh realities of life. All around, David is aware of intrigue and corruption, a total absence of the spiritual sensitivities which have filled Psalm 139 thus far. How will David respond to the pressures of everyday life? Here is the spiritual challenge that God revealed to us in Psalm 139, poses to David and every other believer in a world where so many have no time for God. This psalm, indeed all the psalms, provide a life resource for living in the world, not an ivory tower. The world we inhabit, a world of strains and stresses, disappointments and disasters, fear and failure. A world we will walk into as we leave church this morning. How will we live in this world as the people of God? No easy calling. We need each other. That's why we have fellowship groups devotionals, the Open to God prayer group. They help us. They help us come together that we can help one another stand firm in a world which largely has no time for God. And so I would encourage you, if not already, if not already involved, consider getting involved that we might live together more effectively. A spiritual challenge. For as we have considered this psalm, we see there can be two quite opposite reactions to the wonder of this invisible, mysterious God. On the one hand, it's quite possible to rebel against such a God, to resent his all-embracing knowledge as a hostile invasion of privacy, to seek to flee from his inescapable presence, to deny his sovereign providence over our lives and assert our autonomous human freedom. Such are those depicted in verses 19 to 22. The wicked the bloodthirsty, those described as adversaries of God in verse 20, and therefore regarded by David as his sworn enemies, those he will contend against because he is for God. He is a man after God's own heart. In New Testament parlance, someone who has given their heart to Jesus and become his follower, his disciple. The harshness of David's language may take us aback, may even disturb us, but what David is displaying here is zeal for God, determined discipleship, 
a courageous spirit that nails his colors to the mast and says such folk have to be opposed. In New Testament terms, those who, in the words of Paul in Philippians 3 and verse 18, live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Such folk, such attitudes have to be contended against. In David's world, he stands against such people, such attitudes. In our world, will we? Yes, with grace. But will we stand for God? In gratitude for all that he is. Will we be grateful to God for all that he is? As David was. Grateful for his all-embracing knowledge, his inescapable presence, his sovereign providence. Despite anxious thoughts at the prospect of the Almighty God entering his life, a very healthy attitude to have. David wants them there. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Search me and know that I am grateful for your all-embracing knowledge, your inescapable presence, your sovereign providence. Search me. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And this is, of course, what God wants to do. And in Jesus Christ entered our world to do. Lead us in the way everlasting. So confronting us with even greater mysteries than those touched on in Psalm 139. The mystery of Bethlehem. The mystery of Calvary. The mystery of Bethlehem is already alluded to. God made flesh, a child in a manger, given the name Jesus because he would save us from our sins. Jesus, the one Hebrews 1.3 tells us, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful world. All the glory of God is packed into the person of Jesus. In Jesus, the spiritual being of the invisible God takes on human flesh. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, says John 1 and verse 14. The Son became and continues to be truly God and truly human. And that means the Son continued to fulfill his divine work. He continued to sustain all things by his powerful world. The baby in the manger held the atoms of the manger in place by his mighty word. As a human being, he was genuinely weak and vulnerable. But as the divine Lord, he moved the stars across the sky, including the star that signaled his birth. The mystery of Bethlehem. And if that isn't a mystery... I don't know what is. The mystery of Calvary. The sinless one becoming sin. In Luke's account of the crucifixion, we read these words in Luke 23 and verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. The sixth hour, noon, the time of day when the sun was usually at its zenith. But not that day. For the next three hours, the land was shrouded in darkness. God the Father's face 
was no longer shining on the sun. We've already recorded David's experience in Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. But at this point, that was not the experience of Jesus. As Galatians 3 in verse 13 tells us, on the cross, Christ redeemed us by becoming a curse for us, dying our death. As the hymn we're about to sing soon says, "'Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. Who can explore his strange design? The mystery of Bethlehem, the mystery of Calvary, the mystery that this God of all embracing knowledge, inescapable presence, and sovereign purpose so loved the world, so loved you and I that he sent his son to be born at Bethlehem and die at Calvary that we might find the way everlasting. He wants each of us to say these words, search me, O Lord, to say them, to pray them. Not because there's something inside us that he doesn't know about, but because knowing these things, knowing what we're like in our heart of hearts, he still wants our friendship. He wants a living relationship with us, which will enable him to cleanse us from every offensive way and lead us in the way everlasting. May it be so for each one of us as we go forward into the future that God and his sovereign providence has prepared for us. And this to his glory, the glory of our great and good and gracious God. Amen.